Welcome back to Imago Gay, a podcast dedicated to the value of Imago Day because the equality and dignity of LGBTQ lives matter. This week, we have back on spiritual care provider Roxanne Del Valle. Hey, thanks for being on. Oh, I love it. Along with me, your host, Kendra Arsno, and we are discussing our first topic in the Redefine series, where we look at finding bigger boxes for a bigger God. This week, we're discussing the Bible. In the spirit of finding community through common values rather than belief, we're tackling one of the first and most fundamental beliefs among Christians, including SDAs, which is the belief that the Bible is the one true source of ultimate knowledge and truth. So, how are we going to turn this into a value? Well, just wait and see. Happy National Hispanic Heritage Month, everyone. Yay! Our sponsors for today are Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship International. So if you haven't already, please sign up for their newsletters where you will get the latest updates on queer news and happenings. What is your Hispanic heritage? So my parents are Puerto Rican and I'm a Puerto Rican. (laughs) I was born there. Okay. I grew up there for the first six years of my life. And then I moved to the States for six years. Mm-hmm. And then I returned to Puerto Rico. And I was there until, I think, I turned 20 or around that time. So I've been split pretty evenly between the States and, and Puerto Rico. All right. What has it meant for you to be a Hispanic LGBTQ person? <laughs> <laughs> Question mark? Question mark. Okay. (laughs) I didn't know if there was more to follow. (laughs) Woman. (laughs) Oh. Seminary graduate. (laughs) So many beautiful things and so many hard things, right? I think I, like most people, can see the beauty in my culture and feel very enriched by it. And also being in the United States, I also feel some of the challenges. And with challenge, opportunity, right? So I think kind of like my sexuality, I experience a lot of both and. When you say challenges, what do you mean? You know, I grew up and my friends would point out my parents' accent. Or I found myself translating things for them that were above me. I remember one time I was being bullied in school and there was this girl who was asking for my money and my lunch money. And I didn't speak English. So there was, I kept trying to tell her that the principal had given me money from my papa. And I thought papa would be enough that she would get it. But I just had no way of communicating what I thought was so important that my family was in a very desperate situation and I could not afford to not bring this money back home Mm. and that I also needed it for my lunch. But they took it anyways. And Mm. (laughs) just moments like that, I think that I also had a teacher tell me that I would always be a C student because I was Hispanic. And thankfully, my mom pulled me out of that school and I had a wonderful teacher who changed my life by just saying, I believe in you. Yeah. And like the, uh, the cultural climate 
in Puerto Rico as far as your own process of coming to your own sexuality and LGBTQ? Is it LGBTQ friendly? Oh, man. So I think that's the hard part is that sometimes there are always pockets that are accepting and embracing. But in terms of my home and my family culture, there's a lot of homophobia, you know, and a lot of machismo and a lot of gender roles. And so sometimes when I'm talking to somebody that shares my heritage, I think a little bit of trauma comes up because it, it reminds me of the whole package. Right. And at least... Seventh-day Adventism in Puerto Rico was very homophobic. Much like the Adventism of the United <laughs> States. <laughs> On steroids. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, think, I think it's so important. Wait, can I just say that sure. even talking about it hurts me? Mm-hmm. Because I think I always want to put my people in the best of light. Sure. And there's a lot of beautiful aspects of my culture. And there's a lot of warmth and affection, even with these like underlying bigoted themes happening. Undertones, yeah, yeah, undertones. Yeah. It's not without its counterpart. And I think that's what makes it so complex, that there's a lot of good. And even when there is negative or despite the negative, you have to hold those tensions. Yeah. So how do you stay in relationship and in community while while still honoring yourself, being protective and honoring yourself. I think it's, it's so key because the complexity that you describe, I'm sure, is very much the Latin American experience. And I know that there are people who have written to me regarding this show who are of a Hispanic heritage, and it is very complex. You have pride in who you are and also dealing with having to feel on the outside because of your identity. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, so we've been reading this book by Kat Armas. If you guys want to join us for National Hispanic Heritage Month, it's called Abuelita Faith. Kit Abuelita Faith. Okay. <laughs> I'm doing my California, <laughs> very American, Abuelita Faith. <laughs> Abuelita. <laughs> it's, I've been listening to it on audiobook and it's like, I don't know who they have narrating it, but it's not a native Spanish speaker. And so they're like, Sabaduria. And I'm like, (laughs) okay. (laughs) (laughs) So it's been really great. Wait, 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 wait. Okay. How about you? You are of Hispanic descent. Very interesting because I am Afro-Latina, where Mm -hmm. I was born in Panama. My mom is... Her father came from the islands. Maybe it was Jamaica. My mom's adopted, so I know nothing about my grandparents. She knows very little about her actual parents. But he was like, you know, a black man from the islands who migrated to Panama when they were getting a lot of cheap labor for the Panama Canal. And her mom was pretty much like a native Panamanian person. So she was mixed. And in that culture, I think... In Latin America, there is a lot of colorism. And I was watching this TikTok the other day about what it means to be like Afro-Latina and the ways that it has been very different than American history because American history has really like not wanted the mingling of the races. But in Latin American countries, it was encouraged. They would call it like 
the like mejorando la raza, right? Like mm-hmm. bettering the race by intermingling with white people and becoming lighter and lighter with every generation. And if you were to marry darker, then it was like, ah, uh, un paso atrás. Yeah. And so like, oh, you took a step back, right? Yeah. And so like, it's very much on these color spectrum and color lines. And in that culture, it is a very racialized culture in that sense. It might not look exactly the same as American, but what's so different is I didn't grow up in Panama, right? So my mom was adopted, married my dad, left to the States when she was in her 20s, very much appeared to be just an African-American woman until she opened her mouth and had this very thick Hispanic accent. And, you know, I think you would expect that someplace in New York, but, like, my mom was never in those places. She was in Wisconsin and Illinois and then, like, and then even in California, you don't necessarily have, like, that dynamic, appearing black but speaking with a thick (laughs) Hispanic accent. So I think she had a, a lot of identity crisis, trying to find out what community she really took ownership here in the States. She didn't really feel at home in the Hispanic culture, in California especially. And so in that way, I have also inherited a very complex heritage. I'm mixed. I identify as Latina. I identify as Black. I identify as Afro-Latina. Because I think when I say Afro-Latina, it encompasses that complexity of dual identities. But I don't have a history of growing up in Panama. I can't tell you, you know, my favorite food from there. <laughs> I could tell you what my mom made, right? Yeah. So I have a very second-generation experience, which I think is also a part of right. Hispanic heritage. I don't speak Spanish all that well. <laughs> <laughs> and that, in some ways, for me, is like a source of shame. Mm-hmm. You know, like I can't even speak like my mother language. I'm that far removed. And I've spent years learning in school, but I'm not fluent and I'll probably never be. But (laughs) (laughs) I would like to think that one day and I'm like, I'm 35, I'm never going to get there (laughs) unless I move to this country. And even then I'll probably find a way to just speak English somewhere. (laughs) Um, But so that's kind of my heritage. And I think, you know, it didn't come with super religious overtones. My mom is kind of a rebel so was my dad. And so they didn't bring that culture into how they raised us. And so that was never an, an overtone. Mm-hmm. So I never inherited that part. So, well, we are not alone and you're not alone. Even I think like any census or self-reporting of identity for anybody that is Hispanic, it's hard. It's hard. Like th- it's they're hard. like white, non-Hispanic Oh, yeah. (laughs) I can hardly fill out an application that doesn't give me the options. It says two or more races, not Hispanic. (laughs) I don't know what that means or who they're trying to target. But I was listening to some documentary podcasts where they were talking about how there was this push. And back in the 1950s, Hispanics got placed under the white ethnicity, right? And I think that is just so ignorant of Hispanic culture because there's so much diversity. Like the fact, I'm I'm telling you the truth, so many job applications, you cannot select two or more races without it having in parentheses, not Hispanic. So I, I always end up having to choose other because the idea that you can be black, white, and Hispanic at the same time 
So two or more races, but I am Hispanic and there's just not a category for it in our society. Yeah. So weird. Well, it's interesting that we would even ask about the color of somebody's skin. Again, going back to how am I proud to be who I am and own the beautiful parts and also detach myself from this colonialism uh, colonialism and this culture that places value on socioeconomic status, race. Right. Yeah. When we talk about even Christianity in Hispanic culture and even the idea of race, the the journey to whiteness, <laughs> it's like been synonymous with Christianity, right? It is a way to kind of pass into whiteness in some ways because the Christianity that has been given to many Hispanic countries is not a native entity. It's very much a foreign, white, colonial entity. And so I know there's a lot of scholars that are looking to return to something a little more authentic. And speaking of that, you know, there's this book, Abolita Faith, Cat Armas. We're reading through it right now. And I just want to read a quick quote from it because there's a saying in a Spanish that I don't know how to say. Maybe you know it. But it's basically like, the devil is not wise because he is the devil. He's wise because he's old. Mm. And so it's the fact that the devil is old, <laughs> that he is wise, and that there's wisdom in older generations. And that's why there's a different value system even in Hispanic cultures where you value the elders in your family. Right. You don't want to put them in a home. It's There's a lot of honor and caring for them in their old age yourself, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I used to be so appalled when I was visiting a friend here in the States and the my friend or whoever it was would race to the table and sit down first. Mm -hmm. And it's like there's an adult in the room and you're not waiting until they sit down first. Or like getting in a car. You know, I remember like the front seat was saved for my grandma or that everybody who was older than me had a pick before I did as a sign of respect. Yeah. So there's definitely a different yeah. way that we approach elders mm -hmm. in that community. And so she treats this as, you know, as a typical Hispanic, which is like there is wisdom in older women. And this is what she says in this quote. It says, Abolita theology stems from the reality that in Latina religious culture, matriarchal figures such as Abolitas preserve and pass along religious traditions, beliefs, practices, and spirituality. They function as live-in ministers, particularly because the privilege to receive formal religious instruction is often unavailable. Thus, Abolitas are the functional priestesses and theologians in our families. The theologies we have inherited from these overlooked women have given us a firm foundation to live out our faith and demonstrate love in the world. And it says, the teachings of our abuelitas were our starting points, but we continue in an ongoing and communal effort to critically discern aspects of our inherited traditions that have been colonized. I offer this book in the hope that together, not only Will we embody a community eager to recognize overlooked and unnamed Abuelita theologians in our midst, but we will seek to live out Abuelita faith in our everyday lives? So she even talks about like these figures in the Bible were very likely to have been influenced by wise older women. You have Jeremiah and 
the prophets, they have these kind of quirky sayings that they bring out in their writings. And she uses some of those as examples of like, this is more folk religion, stuff that they grew up hearing. So I think it's a really interesting way to kind of decolonize a Christian lens and put value back into something that is culturally not appropriated. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I just... I'm remembering like moments I've had with my grandmother and I'm trying to remember like specific things that she would say. And even though the words don't come up for me right now, I can remember like those moments where I really felt like she had imparted wisdom Mm. just from like her lived experience, what to be aware of, what to be cautious about, what to be opportunist about you know like what to not let go of and what to value Mm. and I think that she endured a lot and she loved very deeply and so I think I'm a little emotional just knowing how true and how much those words carried me at different points of my life Um, just how interesting where wisdom comes from sometimes All right, we are halfway through our episode. We're going to take a small break, and if you'd like, you can take a deep breath. Okay, let's get back into it. And that is the point of this series and this podcast, right? Because there's something that is self-reliant and self-trusting when we treat life as an adequate teacher of God's good things, right? Yeah. And where we can draw from life experience rather than just a book to know what truth is. As we go forward in this podcast, it is about validating other sources of wisdom. And so the first thing that we're challenging today, (laughs) uh, one of the 28 fundamental beliefs, the first one, but also very fundamental belief of most Christians is the holiness of the Bible and that being the ultimate source of truth. Now, just to kind of get on the same page as far as language, when I say values versus belief, I'm talking about a very simplified version of value, right? I value equality. I value LGBTQ people. I value black lives. I value national Hispanic heritage. You know, <laughs> I value equality. I value justice, right? Like, yeah, I'm excited to get into this conversation and I appreciate the distinction because basing relationship on shared thought is... The only word that comes to mind is fragile, fragile. Yeah. But basing relationship on shared values seems solid to me, virtuous to me. I was asked this week, am I still, do you still think I'm Seventh-day Adventist? And I'm curious. (laughs) (laughs) I think for me, my answer was, At this point in my life, I'm more interested in being a part of communities of action than communities of belief. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's almost like a question that feels moot at some point. It's like, well, great. What if I am? What if I am the most believing Seventh-day Adventist you ever met? 
if that doesn't translate into something tangibly good in this world, it almost feels like, well, then what's the point, right? You often hear these debates in seminary where they talk about, well, what about the people who don't believe in Jesus? What's going to happen to them? It's a great question because it just shows the extent of our love, depending on how we can answer this question. But it often ends with something like, well, you know, God's judging the heart and the Holy Spirit is in conversation with every person. And it's really about responding to the Holy Spirit. Well, what is the Holy Spirit compelling people to do? Well, it's compelling people to make good, ethical, considerate choices of their fellow human beings, right? Like, so you're telling me that God is going to be basing salvation based off of your actions or Oh, and who you are as a person. Uh, <laughs> I cannot even begin to describe my disdain for this paradox. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, what I have found value in is people whose value systems cause them to create action in the world and to do action towards good. And I don't want to be around the the best religious person who does everything by the book because they might not be a very big contributor to the overall good of humanity. <laughs> At the end of the day, after all that I've learned in seminary, I think for me at this point in my life, the most important thing is to find communities of shared value. And so how do you take something like the Bible, number one belief, and how do you turn that into something that is a value? People get triggered just with the thought of this, but... <laughs> Yeah, just how interesting it would be if we could think about, rather than 28 fundamental beliefs, what are the values? And I'm looking to create a bigger community. Mm -hmm. You might fit into this and you might not, right? But it's big enough to encompass you if you wanted to be in it. And so just so we're all on the same page, like traditionally, this is the teaching. The Bible is the only truth that contains the ultimate truth of God. There's a belief that it is clear, speaking in plain language. It is a holy text passed down through Jewish heritage and during the Roman occupation after Christ came, it expanded to incorporate his life and teachings, etc. And it, and it was the only culture through which God communicated. So like the Bible, as we know, the Old Testament is the Torah. And we believe that this is the only culture through which God communicated. And then during 30 AD, during the Roman occupation of Israel, this book became open to the whole world. It also included additional texts, which we know as the New Testament, recording the life of Christ, and some teachings and Paul and Revelation. But that was primarily the culture through which God spoke through. Um, so that's like value number one. What are some drawbacks to this belief. And I hope I did a, a, a just kind of overview of that fundamental belief. No, I think that that it carries this authority, mm -hmm. right? Because it is such a holy text, right? That through the Holy Spirit and through the guidance of God himself, that this text carries an authority over our lives that maybe other more secular texts do not. Correct. Correct. So when I think about, okay, well, what are some of the drawbacks to having this type of belief? One thing I've encountered a lot is I think there is a cultural superiority that happens 
right? It's even, we talk about anti-Semitism and things that happened in Nazi Germany. Like it was really, even during Martin Luther's time, (laughs) Martin Luther spoke some very anti-Semitic words, not Martin Luther King Jr., (laughs) Martin Luther, (laughs) the reformer. (laughs) Different one. Uh, Different one, as spoke a lot of anti-Semitic things and actually sparked kind of this Jewish hunt during his time that he was responsible for a lot of people who perish because of this cultural superiority that can happen when you believe this is the truth, the only truth. Yeah. Uh, so help me God. And and in more contemporary terms even, you know, I think there are Christians who fear opening the Quran or take any kind of wisdom. I mean, I, I, I think it would be triggering even just to suggest that the, we can learn something from the Buddhist tradition or Taoism or just other cultures that carry yeah. this kind of like rich, rich Cultural history, yeah. Cultural history and, and Religious wisdom. history, yeah. Exactly. And I think it also takes away from relationship. So if I'm speaking to somebody who believes in the Bhagavad Gita or is Buddhist or lives by the Quran, like that there can be a sense of one always trying to win them to your truth because you have ultimate spiritual truth and you're not actually listening You're not actually receiving that there is something beautiful to be had in this exchange with this other human being. It's it's an attitude problem, right? When you assume that you have, that you are superior, that your understanding is superior to other cultures and other traditions, it would be an exercise to meet those cultures and traditions with curiosity, mm-hmm. uh, with an attitude of like a learner's mind, right. you know, of wanting to receive instruction. And not afraid to be tainted by whatever it is that you learn. Or confused or drawn to some like really false teaching. I think that's what the fear is. Yep. And when I think about, so what is a better way to take the Bible rather than a belief, but how do you turn it into a value. And for me, this is what I've come up with. And I'm sure some of you might challenge me on this, but to look at the Bible as a holy text does not negate that there is wisdom that has come from abuelitas, from ancient sources of religious figures of different texts and different cultures and different places that I can begin to appreciate, right? And I think... For me, if I were to give a command to say, okay, how can I turn this belief into a value? I would say the value for me is to hold something sacred. Now, what I mean by that, I'm going to go into a lot of explanation, but when you hold something sacred, say you do hold the Bible as sacred, it means that you're giving something authority over your life to speak to you. Now, This does not mean hold anything sacred. I'm not saying that. I think there are two rules that you should always follow when you're putting anything on a pedestal in your life or giving anything permission to speak authoritatively to you. And that is, is this speaking harm against myself or is this speaking harm against other people? In that sense, I'm going to disregard this authority. But 
There are many things that you might hold sacred in your life. It might be the Bible. It might be the Bhagavad It might be the Quran. It might be, and I know this is triggering for some people, but follow me. It might be the voice of your grandmother, right? But whenever it is, the reason why there is value in a person holding something sacred is that we become people that can be teachable. Mm-hmm. And we're also people who are accountable to a voice that is calling us to our higher self. Now, these grandmothers, these spiritual books, like they call us to a higher version of humanity, a greater insight into ethics and what it means to be human in this world. And that means that you value that and that you're willing to make yourself accountable to something. There's a a podcast called Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, and it's a chaplain from Harvard, and, and they use Harry Potter in a way that they're going to treat it as if it were speaking to them intentionally, right? They're not looking at the text to criticize, to find the contradictions. They're looking at it in a good faith way to say, what can I learn about life and friendship and really apply this in my life in a meaningful way? Yeah. And when you hold something sacred, even a book, sometimes it we might have different touchstones in our life. And the reason why this chaplain chose this, there are different touchstones that each person has in their life. And for him, it was Sleepless in Seattle, right? And so that's his childhood movie. He grows up with it. He can quote it. And there are just these moments, these touchstones of idealism that he always goes back to and he references in his relationships. And so Not every person you meet is going to be spiritual, but they're going to hold something sacred in their life. It might be a voice of a paternal figure. But if you do not hold anything sacred in your life, that means that nothing is sacred to you. And I think meeting a person to whom nothing is sacred is a dangerous person. It means they're not accountable to other people. They're not willing to receive guidance and wisdom as authoritative. They're unsaddled human beings. And I think we, when we do not hold anything sacred, that we're capable of great harm because we've lost the sacredness of life in that sense. And so when we have a wider, more encompassing view, instead of saying the Bible is the only source of truth and the only place wherein I choose to get truth, if I can change that into a value and say, you know, I value holding something sacred, and I, I think it's wonderful that you hold the Bible as sacred, because that means you're holding yourself accountable to a higher version of yourself, to love your neighbor as yourself, to live as God has called you to live. That's great. And I can say the same thing about the person who lives by the Torah, or the Quran, or the Bhagavad or the Taoist, or Buddhist teachings, right? I no longer have to treat them as people who don't fit inside my box. Now, I understand that might be much too large of a box for some people, but for me, I can find comfort in the value that we all hold something sacred that is going to keep us accountable to be the best human beings we can be. Very well said. (laughs) I think that's what wisdom does. It means that no matter where you are in life, what your age is, what your culture is, that The sacred speaks to you, it transcends, and that 
regardless of your age or your understanding, truth can reach you, that wisdom can reach you. And for me, you know, as I've expanded my sources and just welcomed those different wells and, and springs of truth, I've learned how interwoven God is in my everyday life. And I am so glad that he is, they are, she is not so attached to this one hour section of my life that in conversation with the wise patient or the dying mom or in my walk where I picked up a penny just at the right time to save me from stepping on dog poop. That in these random moments, I find the divine or the sacred speaking to me and enlightening me and filling my heart with truth and wisdom. It's like I don't stop growing in understanding. And I am a sentient being who's constantly engaging the sacred. And it's a matter of receiving or, yeah. or staying open to those moments when the sacred speaks to me. Yeah, the voice of wisdom, right? A voice that is calling you to a higher version of yourself. I'm using a very interfaith term, sure. the sacred, to mean mother of hope or whatever yeah. <laughs> that may look like to you, God of many names. You know, it's just whatever it is that you hold separate and higher than you. It could also be the collective unconscious, the heritage of the history you're born into. It, right. it could be whatever it is that you give authority over your life and that you revere and respect as, as higher than you, bigger yeah. than you. I think that that's such a beautiful, because it, it makes relationship safe. And what I mean by that is like, if I believe that wisdom is speaking to me through people, not just through a book, but that wisdom comes to me through a variety of sources whether it's book, whether it's my observation of the world, whatever it is, wisdom can speak and access my soul. I think that having that belief and having that hope makes it safe to be in relationship with other people. And it makes religion, it makes a belief system accountable more to than just the rationale that developed it. Exactly. It makes a belief system accountable to, to the actions. larger community, <laughs> exactly. to the experience of the people that it's impacting. We're not saying it's an either or. You can only have a belief system or a value system. Here's value systems to replace belief systems. You're always going to believe in things. Sure. But when you base community and relationship on thought likeness, it makes it very difficult for people to be a part of it who are not born into the same culture, born into the same privileges, the same socioeconomic status. So I love that. I love that. And last, and this, what are we not saying when I'm saying this particular distinction about values and beliefs? I'm not saying that everything and anything is deserving to have authority over your life and everything and anything should be sacred. But I think in good faith, have some things that we are listening to, whether that's a voice of a therapist or maybe it's a book that you're reading just for a time. And what that means is you're really going to pay attention in good faith, not being super cynical or critical, not looking for all the contradictions, 
but you're willing to put yourself in a student-type position to listen for the wisdom that is present. And as far as the sacred speaking to us, it doesn't mean that you're going to get all the answers from the wind or that everything that comes to you is the voice of God. I think that that is the whole point of wisdom. Wisdom teaches you, fills in the moral gray areas of life. And also, wisdom is wisdom is so practical, right? Wisdom is about how to get by in the actual world that we live in. Yeah. Don't get in the van with a stranger who has candy. I know he's offering candy, <laughs> but he does not have your best interest at heart, right? right? Like it's dealing with the real life that we actually live in. Wisdom is so based in what is going to work for this moment for you to cause the least harm. Right. Like it's it's a wonderful thing. Regardless of our cultural complex identities, we are all immersed in cultural norms arising from the white middle class and owning class. White supremacy culture is co-created within systems of capitalism, settler colonialism, and Christian hegemony. And it forms the scaffolding that our thoughts and beliefs arise out of. Thank you so much for listening in to the first episode in our Redefine series where we are looking at fundamental belief number one, the Bible, and how to turn that belief into a value to create greater community, bigger boxes for a bigger God. Our co-host for today was Roxanne Del Valle. If you'd like to follow her, you can do so on Instagram at Roxanne Marie. I'm your host, Kendra Arsenault, and you can follow me on Instagram at Kendra Arsenault with an X. Please stay tuned for next week where we will continue this redefine series. If you enjoyed today's episode, please make sure to like, subscribe, and share with a friend. You can also follow our sponsors for today, Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship, and be sure to sign up for their newsletters where you will get the latest updates on queer news and happenings. This episode was created and engineered by yours truly and sponsored by Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship International.